the subject of the evening talk, which is the closing evening talk of this retreat together, is Love of the Planet. It is probably reasonably self-evident to us that in living on this earth that our life and the life which is around us are quite inseparable from each other. And so our human existence and the existence of the earth have entered into a relationship, a, a state of sustained co-participation. And so our days and weeks and months of years of our life unfold with a continuous relationship to life, whether we are aware of it or not. And perhaps sometimes you and I, we've thought back, we've reflected a little bit back over the past, over the, the, the history of our planet as much as we can know and be informed about it. And we've been aware of the, the countless generations of men, women, children, creatures, environments, which have also coexisted on this planet. And through all of those processes of events, countless events which have taken place, women and, and men have been different ways and different times in tremendous struggle with themselves, with each other, with the world in which we live. And through all of those times, there was a time, we might say briefly, in this historical process, which is not so long ago, perhaps in the last couple of hundred years, in which there was some kind of discovery of how inventiveness itself can somehow make life more easier or convenient. And there came about this whole revolution of values and based on various dichotomies both in philosophy and in theology, in the sciences, in the sciences, which made, one might say in very simple terms, something of a division as a hard and fast rule between humankind and the planet. And the planet became, in, its in, in the interpretation of it, as an opportunity, almost an, an infinite and indefinite opportunity to use its resources, to have, as one of the old religious texts says, have dominion over the earth. And with all the changes that are taking place in the human <coughs> psyche, there came about this infatuation which still continues, if not obsession, with the producing and the acquisition of more. And for a number of societies, with their various superstitions and conflicts and, and so forth, this kind of worldview was in stark contrast to their own cultures and societies. And what happened, and of course we're speaking here very much of our own society, what happened that the, this view gained a, has gained a predominance. It's gained a predominance 
to such a degree and to such an intensity that the way of living that we experience in various degrees becomes the model of how to live and what makes life worth living. And it seems within the context of such a, a model or approach to life that there has been and there continues to be very little real account for the implications of a life in which competitiveness, addiction, ambition, aggression, self-interest becomes the predominant internalized value as and therefore the major determinant for the actions of body, speech and mind. And when that becomes a norm, a predominant value, it is clearly, surely, and directly at the expense of love for the planet. And within that process, shall we say, of events which take place, it's like one can provide in this world at the present time a long list of the serious, life-threatening issues which are taking place. And one can cover those, touch on those life issues from the, the threat to life of humankind through all the ways that that can take place, nuclear weapons, there's the threat to life of the extinction of countless numbers of species, the threat to life of the environment with its ongoing pollution of the earth, the rivers, the seas, the airs, and within all of that and all the global conflicts, life of planet, life of humans is under threat like it's never, ever, ever been before. And because of all of those factors, and because of all the, in the stress inherent within all of those factors, and the tension, and the pressure, that it brings about a weakening of the whole human organism. That the organism itself, our, our biological system, as we know, continues to be threatened in and of itself by the way we have made our world. And we might say, we might say, within all of this, we, of this generation, living, breathing, thinking, and experiencing this life, that we are at historical crossroads. This, we with the responsibility. And I wonder sometimes, I remember that what a next generation or a future generation, in their looking back in and reflecting, may, the way that they may look at this present generation, in which the, the, the exploitation of life, of the earth's resources, taking place at such an alarming rate with no 
real consideration for the implications for the future generations. What will future generations say if they are still present with life on Earth and still love the planet? What will they say of this generation? When I was a young guy, my late teens and so forth, like plenty of young people would go hitchhiking, in this case on the continent. And sometimes when hitchhiking down the autobahns, some of you may have done this, uh, down the autobahns in Germany, which were first built in the rise of Nazi power in the, the mid-30s, I'd get into a car, and sometimes the person who's giving me a ride would be a, an elderly German. And I've sometimes, this would be about 19, no, early 1960s, and sometimes I would be tempted to ask a very straightforward question. As you see, the tendencies there have been for a long time. <laughs> uh, and, um, and the question which I would ask was, was, what were you doing in the Second World War? This, is <laughs> this generally would send up the car temperature a few degrees. <laughs> and, and what struck me one day is that there may be in a generation or two our children or our friends children or our grandchildren or whatever they may be saying to this present generation what were you doing when there are all these nuclear weapons what were you doing when all the tropical rainforests were being destroyed what were you doing when there was all this social injustice what were you doing when people were being deprived of their human rights weren't allowed to say what they want to say, read what they want to read, do as they wish to do, that when they weren't allowed to work in the way they wished to work, weren't allowed to work at all, weren't allowed to receive treatment in hospitals or get education unless they could show up and front up with the money first. And all the other countless situations and problems and suffering and all its diversity which presents us to our lives every day, and as I say, the next generation or one after, they may be asking us when we're alive, what were we doing? A couple of days ago, a very good very dear friend of the uh, of the uh, of the the world of Dharma practice came to uh, visit here for a, a few hours, and that is uh, Roger Walsh. And Roger Walsh has done many, many of you are very good friends with Roger. He's done many years of uh, practice. He's uh, at the University of California, and. He's a, a writer on issues, and his book is Downstairs, which deals with basically the psychology of survival. And so Roger and I, just a couple of evenings ago, were talking together, and in fact I made uh, a uh, interview with him, which I wish to um, play um, to friends in uh, England and elsewhere. And one of the questions that I put to Roger, and I think it's very, you know, important question in its own way. I said, 
to Roger, supposing a, a, a person on the street looks at this situation, begins to feel those kind of everyday facts which I've just reported, which you are already familiar with, and, and that person says, God, there are so many issues and there's so much going on. What can I do? What, how can anybody do anything? I said, how would you respond if someone like that comes up to you, Roger? What, what, how would you treat, work with that? And he said a very, um, very important and valuable thing. He said, the person comes and the person says, I don't know. What can you do? What, what, one, what can one possibly do? And he said, first one must live with this question. Learn to live with it. What can I do? Rather than hear the question, the thought and feeling arises, and then dismiss it and say, by saying, I can't do anything. First live with this question. What, ca what can I do? With the view in heart and mind, to see if something is possible, so that one makes some kind of transition, he's, Roger is saying, as a, as a second step, shall we say, from not knowing what to do, keeping in touch with one's heart and one's concern, feeling one's helplessness, and then seeing what information can be found out, specifically, what, what, what steps ca can be taken. And one may have to live with this question for six months or one year or two years or whatever, but to uh, allow that question to run deep in one's heart. <coughs> and I say, whatever we do, whatever kind of area of activity and interest, whether it's with groups, whether it's writing, whether it's public speaking, whether it's dealing with a, with a child that suffered sexual abuse, whether it's giving somebody who's got an alcohol problem, whether it's just being a good friend to a neighbour or whatever, whatever the action that you and I may engage in, it will always seem terribly small and insignificant. And that's one of the sustained feelings, unfortunately, which one has to live with in human service. Human service means a s human is serving the planet via people, via creatures, or via or with the, with the environment. And when it's like one in, one in one's work, one, one has to carry this feeling with one. But if this feeling, a feeling of such little that one can do, when, as people report in the days, when that feeling begins to get established, it acts almost like a shadow over the quality of activity in which one is engaged. And it disheartens the spirit. And when the spirit inside of us gets disheartened by the feeling of inability, unable, doing so little, it's not far from despair. Yes. 
That's why in that respect it's rather necessary for such events, as small as they are, such events as this and other various forms which are being explored, which provide some opportunity opportunity in a stress-filled world for you and I to gain renewal and step back into it. And to gain renewal again and step back into it. And this recycling thread to really take place. Let me just say, if I just speak from the personal level, Um, seven years ago this month I was on a TWA flight from um, uh, London to the States and incidentally the vegetarian on TWA hasn't improved at all Um, (laughs) and in this um, um, uh, flight and I was sitting on the plane and it sometimes happens in one's life that there's just a, a seemingly unlinked area of mind and heart that suddenly gets linked up together, suddenly interconnectedness takes place quite spontaneously and there no, doesn't seem to be any kind of obvious preparation to this. And what linked up and got... Um, um, fused, sometimes I've thought, unfortunately, um, is that there is a distinct relationship between spirituality and political awareness. And one of the things that we have seen, and I um, was discussing this also with Roger, is that with traditional religion, as it is classified, and as it has tended to show itself, has become identified with state, with the state, with nationhood. And that there has been this tragic, historically tragic mixing of the gather together. And we see this phenomena, this religious phenomena, taking place all over the planet. And And instead of religion contributing to making women and men truly free, truly free and being at home on the earth anywhere as participants in the planet that the religion and the forces of identification with it and the nation have got into a marriage and a marriage without a divorce unfortunately and whereas contemporary spirituality which may be within the field of religion, has no bounds to it, is not defined by nationhood, is not defined by fundamentalist beliefs or by religious dogma. And this spirituality, of which there are many beautiful expressions taking place in countless ways, it struck me, flying on this aeroplane, there is something about the work which is integral, potentially, with the political world. The two can fuse together as part of 
being on the historical crossroads where you and I, in very clear ways, whether you and I know it or not, are making decisions about our planet and its existence and all the multiplicity of life which presents itself. Every day we make the decisions about that. In this spot, where they say uh, uh, some sustained uh, interest and activity, and I never ever say that somebody who's in concern with spiritual values must be involved politically. But I do say your daily actions and my da daily actions in this interdependent field generate, in consequence, all over the planet. And therefore, the frequent recollection and stepping back and looking at what's happening, which is our, one of our trainings on the retreat, is appropriate and vital to you in your daily life and to me in my daily life, stopping, stepping back and looking at what's happening. And some of the aspects of what we are looking at and working with are the forces of addiction, the forces of aggression and the forces of fear and divisiveness. And though you and I may recognize clearly all the kind of pains and uh, difficulties that come out of various kind of addictions and we need the support of each other, few of us can be free of our addictions by our own work and effort. Very, 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 very few people, in my experience, can liberate themselves from that. But I do believe, and I have implicit trust, in people's heart and togetherness and the support that we give each other in the face of our difficulty. Because this human resource is a very wonderful um, resource. And one of our addictions is consumerism the wish to have more than what's actually necessary, the wish to get better than what's necessary. And it's constantly having to stop in our life and just check it out with ourselves and, and with, each, with each other. So that somehow or other, the thought of what I buy and what this means for the planet actually get related that we start to fuse a spiritual awareness with a political awareness which shows itself when we walk into the Kmart, as I say. <laughs> that the two are really not a distance, there's not a distance, in fact, from each other. And that's already happening. That is going on. And if we keep putting that on, then these nationals and these multi-corporations and all that takes place will feel the weight of our view and our opinion and our saying what's going on in the way it's going on has gone on long enough and people and creatures and planet can't tolerate it any longer. perhaps the most important word in the English language is two letters, no.
And sometimes, for some people, and I'm saying, I never put this as a uh, emphasis because uh, it's, uh, some people's leanings or whatever, is in the, in the world, uh, the, the political world in its obvious kind of uh, sense. And one sees, and as anybody knows who's, who's worked, what I, w- what I would call, in the politics of protest. And the politics of protest are very, 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 very diverse in that respect. And only um, this morning I was reading in the newspaper of a man who was making a protest about the shipment of weapons to the Contras and standing on the, on the railway line where these, this ra- train was uh, shipping these weapons and this uh, man was uh, struck by this uh, uh, train and uh, very seriously uh, injured and all that comes out of that and, and just sometimes when people they, they make a protest and they stand for their protest in terms of their protest Sometimes there is some risk involved. And one can't help but notice and appreciate in the historical processes that it is so frequently, in my readings of the uh, history, that frequently there have simply been women and men who have stood together and have said, no, things must change, and have stood their ground in spite of everything, and through that courage and through that sustained conviction things have changed and many of the freedoms that you and I love and experience and enjoy today and take for granted is because of those women and men in past generations who said no, no, no and our love for the planet comes as I say comes easily and effortlessly in countless ways and, and that beautiful sharing today. What, what is that? But shared love and manifesting and reflecting and taking verbal ex- expression through humour, through reflection, through the sharing of an experience, through a moment of appreciation, through what, whatever. And this facilitating of this and finding ways for this is healing, healing for life and healing for, for our planet. So I have, I have great person, great trust and faith, not never knowing what tomorrow is or next month or year, in the significance of people meeting together and spending time together in a shared awareness. And sometimes one involves oneself. I may just um, rec- uh, rec- recall here. Just earlier this year, I was um, I'm involved in the Green Party. I don't mind it's a political adv- advertising for a minute or two. <laughs> the uh, Green uh, Party has, as its under Green philosophy in the international Green movement, has as its underlying principle which in terms of its political philosophy, is one. The principle is concern. This concern is for people, creatures and environment, and a respect for life which is supportive of all three. It's not just being environmentalist to protect the environment, 
but it's for people and environment and all the creatures. And that there, and within that, there are certain political platforms, let us say. There's a platform, an emphasis on non-violence, platform, an emphasis on decentralization. You know, if um, the um, uh, Greens were ever in power in uh, the US, the uh, White House would become a kindergarten. You know, <laughs> so and uh, maybe it's one already. Anyway, so, <laughs> so and uh, and an another another um, area is work for all work, which is both socially beneficial and constructive, and life enhancing, rather than this soul-destroying, mundane work which people feel so bored and despairing with, and a way of living which takes into account how we relate to what resources we have available. So a vision of present with future for the planet. In it. And these are kind of general kind of foundations of that. And being involved in this, or any of you in politics, anything in that area, know the politicking that goes on. So during the campaign, as I wanted to report, I, um, the Green Party was um, um, putting out its, as the major, as the political parties do, its manifesto. Just talking, reminding them. And covering all the very salient points. This is a fairly lengthy document, you know, all argued through on the various general meetings. So in the West Country, I was asked, for the West Country of Britain, asked to, what they call, launch the manifesto, which meant that um, the, the press came and you know, the, the, the TV um, people and, and so forth, and we, we, we sat on behind this table, you know, and green posters up everywhere, so in the middle of the election campaign. <laughs> so just after it, this uh, the, uh, BBC TV reporter, she said to me, um, she said, um, I'd like to make a one-minute interview with you. <laughs> <laughs> This is it, to go on the television, on the BBC television this evening, um, on, on the news, and in this you have one minute, and I'm going to ask you four questions. <laughs> <laughs> and then she set up the cameraman, and then, and then the, the spotlight, you know, and uh, you know, I had my jacket, I had a jacket on, I had a tie on, which I felt strangling me, you know, <laughs> looking like this. And then, and then she, said, she, she said, right, are you ready? And I said, yes. And then the first question was, please give a summary of your Green Party manifesto. <laughs> I just burst out laughing at this. And then cut, stop, turn it So this is this, you know, inevitably nutty world in which one has to live dealing with these, anyway, dealing with all, <laughs> the, all these stuff. Yes. And it just one finds that once one starts engaging in any kind of, uh, of activity and all that accompanies it, it's like one's finding oneself in situations which in a way have to bring oneself out of oneself. 
that we carry, we cherish a certain kind of image of ourselves. And the extraordinary thing is with our self-image and, and the varying defined roles that accompany the self-image, the image determines the potential. Not absolutely, obviously, but it determines the potential. And there, there goes along with it the conclusion, not born of reality, not born of actuality of living as a human being, but born of the image which says frequently, I can't do this. And this Im image, as it were, like a, like a, like a, uh, a glass case in which we live. And when we wish to make an action, we come up against this glass case, and use it as a, an analogy, and which says, I can't do. Or our life in such a way becomes confined and, def and defined by what we are doing, and then we say, I can't do any more than what I'm doing, which may well be true, but ecological awareness, social awareness, personal awareness, includes the importance in political and spiritual language of what we might refer to as the conservation of energy. It's a very hard thing, energy, to, to, you know, to, get, to get to grips with. But we might speak of the conservation of energy. And this conservation of energy must begin at home as much as we may speak of it outside. And what we frequently don't realize in, in ourselves, that we create for ourselves a tremendous disparity between work and leisure. And we make it so hard and fast, we can't see the fusion between the two. And so as a result of it is, we use a lot of energy up in our work. Of course, we're giving, and we're sharing, and we're working, and we're studying, and we're writing, and we're interacting, etc., etc. And it's so appropriate that one has a break from it. But frequently, the leisure actually takes, some forms of leisure, take more energy and drain and sap one even more and make one less able in terms of dealing as a working human being. And when then we might consider in our fields of leisure and the times for it and the appropriateness, how is it spent? How, how, is it, how is it used? How big is the division for me in my experience or conceptual way between these two areas? And then that sometimes perhaps our consideration there may be in terms of, well, I think very important area, what we eat. What we eat. What are the social implications of what we eat? What are the political implications? What are the environmental, the ecological Im implications? My little, let me give you a more example. My little daughter name's Nashona. It's um, American 
Indian name. And I have a great deal of affection, I'm sure many of you have, for the American Indian uh, culture, which was uh, a victim of circumstances and greed and aggression as much as many other cultures. And the, my little daughter was uh, talking to her friend one day, and they were talking about meat eating, in this case, meat eating, cause they're, and they're both vegetarian. And um, I think one of the long-standing myths in our society is that one needs meat, it's somehow necessary. You know, I regard it as a completely superfluous item of food. Completely irrelevant to a nutritious diet. And uh, the, uh, I'm sure the cows and the sheep and the pigs and the chickens would wholeheartedly agree if they could <laughs> speak. <laughs> but since they haven't got the opportunity to speak for themselves, I prefer to... Uh, I don't mind speaking for them. And my little daughter and her friend were talking. And her friend said to Nishana, Do you know what? I went to somebody's house the other night for dinner. And do you know what was on the table? There was a dead animal on the table. <laughs> and my friend and her parents were eating it. Can you imagine? And the Shauna, this was a year or so ago, and the Shauna said, No. <laughs> now maybe we've overprotected our children, I don't <laughs> from that real world, but anyway. <laughs> and to me it does seem peculiar. You know, you know, when you think of just think about it, you know, eating the backside of a cow, you know, it just you know, the leg of a chicken. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's such a bizarre form of human behavior. <laughs> so in small gestures of our looking at ourselves and giving consideration to our activities and, and to our periods of time and to our, our leisure and, and, and so forth, it, there, there is those kind of considerations, and if I may, I don't want to sing on about vegetarian, but I, one great value of it is, and the staff and uh, the teachers, we went out for an evening, the other evening for an hour to a Vietnamese uh, um, uh, restaurant nearby, and there were 56 choices that one could eat. 56 dishes were available because they listed one down to 56. And if you're vegetarian, everything is so simplified. There are only two choices for vegetarians. See? Fif <laughs> number 54 and 55. You know, it's, <laughs> it, 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 you know, it makes life so easy. <laughs> you know, it's either tofu or fried veg. You know, and you <laughs> <laughs> And similarly with other areas of our daily life, if in our looking into these areas is this is state that I mentioned before of being, of not knowing, recognizing that frequently images 
for us cannot at all have some kind of inhibiting influence. And sometimes, and I think it's very important, sometimes amongst the community of friends and loved ones, that person, he or she, says to us, oh, you are so good at, or I really can see in you the potential too. And because of the nature of our society and the kind of peculiarity of uh, feedback that goes along with it, frequently we can't hear this. Somebody says something appreciative about us, or expresses a gratitude towards us, or perceives a, a potential which we have within us, and we don't need to, these, you know, psychics, you know, for all of this. You know, we can look at ourselves and say, please ask Joe Bloggs up in the, in the, in the nether sphere, you know, <laughs> what I'll be doing in the year 2002. You know, we... we <laughs> you know, you know if, uh, if I was a spirit up there, I'd be really fed up with being woken up <laughs> night after night by somebody down below who's going, And so frequently we have this difficulty in hearing this. And so when somebody recognizes and does perceive some quality and capacity which we are expressing or we have the potential to express, we deny it easily. We say, oh, no, can't talk, no, no, talking about somebody else. You know, not me, I'm, I can't do that, etc., etc. And we may not actually verbalize it to that person, but the internal dialogue which goes along can easily be rejection. And in rejection, when we buy that thought sequence, we forget there are more important things than a sequence of thoughts which determines that way, which looks that way, which views that way. And that's the marriage that we might be talking about, is a marriage of heart and head, a marriage of human being into life, a marriage in which our, our, um, our awakening is immediate and clear in a way that not in a way that there is an ongoing discovery. And you, when you and I are willing and able to keep our eyes and our ears open, and, w and when we're willing to connect and listen with each other, willing to find out what's happening willing to hear what people say to us, willing to be together in silence and all the renewal that comes. This historical crossroads means that we are going forwards, not backwards nor sideways. And the responsibility for this is really with us here in this room. And our brothers and sisters wherever they are on the planet, which, let us say, may listen to a talk like this, which takes many forms from many different speakers, and said, and one's heart, somewhere along the road of that communication, the heart says, yes, 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 to awareness and to love of the planet, and no, no, no to destructiveness and exploit, exploitation and the, the tyranny 
takes place against human life. And so in our hearts and our mind, keeping our mind awake and, and alert, that there's a feeling in life of the, the solidarity, the solidarity with our brothers and sisters who languish in the jails in Central America and South America, <coughs> the solidarity with the, 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 the people of Ethiopia and the, and the black communities of South Africa, the solidarity with the, the poor and the dispossessed of California, and the solidarity with the people who struggle day in, day out, just to survive. And each act, each gesture that you and I engage in is the one that counts. Because in I feel, in spite of everything, and in spite of all that this goes on in this world, that life is extraordinary. It is extraordinary. That life can be aware of itself. And life can know itself, and participate in itself, and experience itself, and share itself. And there's a mystery about it. And that mystery knows neither beginning nor end, neither birth nor death, neither coming nor going, neither this nor that, and yet never separate from it. And we are this mystery. May all beings live with love. May all beings live with reverence for the planet. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.